Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. This is episode eight of a 20 episode series all about Antarctica, which will be coming to your ears every Thursday until I run out of Antarctica related episodes. So today's episode features Jocelyn Argetta. She's a science communicator, a bench scientist, and also a performer. And she's here today to tell all about her time going to the South Pole. She went to the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory with Polar Trek, and she tells all about how that uh, opportunity came about, which is just like a crazy round of luck and also awesome. Um, and she tells us about her work in science communication as Jargi the Science Girl, how that whole um, program came about, about her tiny ice series that she's doing on YouTube about her time in Antarctica, and what she plans to do in the future. Um, we also talk about how she got into science, things that she loves, about science communication in general, and also about her past um, work in performing arts and like the link between those two things and how they help each other. So enjoy. I'm very intrigued because I have heard of none of these things yet. <laughs> so Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I mean, neither did I before I worked with um, the Ice Cube Observatory, which is why I'm so excited about it now because I can't believe this existed and I didn't know about it. Yeah, maybe do you want to start there and just like tell me how you heard about it, how you got involved with that? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so a few years ago, I partnered with a theater company to create a science show for kids. Um, so that's called Jargi the Science Girl. And it's a live show where we started off touring to schools and libraries and small after school groups. But eventually we developed it into a larger national version for theaters. Um, and it's, it's really, really funny how that tied into my South Pole trip because we were in the middle of promoting our very first national tour in 2019, and we had a few press articles, uh, mostly local, go out about us, about the show launching and such. And just randomly, I get this email saying, hey, I'm in charge of the education with Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory. Um, I saw an article about you. Would you like to go to the South Pole? And <laughs> my first impression was, okay, this is a scam. You know, they're going to ask for my money. Um, and I researched it a little bit. And then I realized I had a friend who had gone through the same program, which is Polar Trek. And she actually traveled um, to the North Pole, um, to the Arctic region. And so I asked her, you know, is this real? Is, is this actually going to happen? She's like, no, it's a great program. You should do it. And after talking to the head of their education department, I learned that he was he had a teacher lined up to go to the South Pole, um, but they didn't clear um, some of the requirements. They had another teacher that also didn't clear. And so they were kind of scrambling to find someone so that they could use their grant money. And um, he was on a plane and he saw an article about the show, which I didn't even know that the article was in a plane magazine and I still haven't found it. Um, so he reached out and thought, well, maybe, maybe Jocelyn would want to go as Jargi. Um, so I went with the program called Polar Trek, which is a NSF funded program that sends educators, both formal and informal like myself, both up to the North Pole and the South Pole at different research stations so that they can get integrated into the research teams and learn what field research is like and all with the goal of coming back to their community or their classrooms and creating some curriculum or just sharing about what exists in these really remote areas. Yeah, that's that's really cool. What a like random round of fortuitous luck. <laughs> You're like, oh, hey, do you wanna go to South Pole? Uh, yes, I do actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely blew my mind. And I think that was the moment that made me realize or made me believe that anything can happen in life, right? You hear people say like, oh, anything can happen. Like things will just align or random things. And I'm very cynical, so I didn't, I didn't believe it. But that email coming through and having the experience actually go forward, I anything can happen. And, and I think that everything you do really builds towards like the opportunities that are for you, wherever they make oh, 
<laughs> Absolutely. I would have also been like, wait, is this email real? I need to do some Googling. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, will you tell me about like your experience at the South Pole? How do you even get there? Like what kind of things did you do? Oh man, it is a journey. Just getting to the South Pole is a journey and an adventure in itself. I think that if I would have gotten there and then just turned right back around, I'd have still so much to talk about uh, in terms of what I experienced. Um, so the process starts well, well ahead of your actual trip. Um, for the traditional program, it takes them about a year to prepare the educators to go. Um, I had kind of a really shortened uh, version of that because they found me so late. But um, essentially, you go through a lot of training uh, about field safety uh, that's specific to where you're going to be. And you have to pass a physical clearance. So they call it physical qualification or your PQ process, which is this daunting process where you have to go get all of these tests, a physical exam, a dental exam, x-rays, and they do it because you're going to remote regions where there is medical care available, but if you have any pre-existing conditions or anything that would require extensive care, that, that would make it very difficult. Obviously, it's very hard to get in and out of places like the South Pole. So you go through that process and um, once you clear your physical qualification, that's basically your green light. Then you're kind of locked in. You're going to go. And um, specifically for the South Pole, there's a few stops that you have to make. So the first one, um, I'm in Los Angeles. So I flew from LAX to New Zealand to Christchurch, where they have the U.S. Antarctic program warehouse, where you get all of your extreme cold weather gear. So I spent a couple days in New Zealand just getting all of my, my like that red classic parka jacket, all of my equipment. I got more safety training there. Um, and from there, you leave onto your ice flight is what they call it because it's the flight that takes you into Antarctica and you land on the ice. And so from New Zealand, you travel to the coast of Antarctica, which is McMurdo Station. And that's a pretty large station there, relatively large. Um, in, this, in the summer season when I arrived in November, there was about close to a thousand people. And so it's a little, little community and the buildings are spread out so that you can walk around them. It almost feels like you're on a college campus, but it's cold, very, very cold. <laughs> and um, it's on the coast, so you get to see the sea ice. It's, it's gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. And also in the summer season, there's 24 hours of sunlight. So you're up at any time of the day or night and you can just look out the sun reflecting off the sea ice. It's beautiful. Um, so then in McMurdo, you stay there for a couple days because you, you're waiting for the flight to get you to the South Pole, which is hard to predict because the weather is so unpredictable. And um, often there are tons of delays that could happen. I met a, a group there that, that were headed not to the South Pole, but to a different field camp, a much smaller one. And they had been in McMurdo for about two weeks waiting for their flight. So they were like rearranging all their timelines because they just didn't know. They had to wake up every morning and check the flight schedule and see if today was a day. Um, luckily, I didn't, I didn't get delayed too much. I spent Thanksgiving there. So I got delayed maybe three days because of the holidays. Um, and then you fly into the South Pole and the, the, just the plane itself is really amazing. It's a, it's a military plane that has skis and and wheels. So you fly on and you land at the um, airfield at the South Pole and there it is, the station. It's like something I had stared at for months and it's such a, it was such, that was my, probably my favorite feeling is seeing this building that felt like a fantasy, like something that didn't really exist, only existed in pictures. And here it is in front of me. It's real. I can gauge how large it is finally. Um, and feeling the brightness and the degree of cold was unreal, especially for someone from California. I mean, I, I honestly had to buy a whole new wardrobe just to go to here. And now it's 
now it's just sitting in my closet like I don't have anywhere to wear it to yet um but yeah the, the adventure to get there is long it took me about took me about a week a little over a week um maybe close to 10 days just to get to the South Pole Station proper yeah that is a big adventure <laughs> yeah definitely yeah what'd you do once you got there like and how long were you there for I was at the station for about three and a half weeks. Um, and I was working with the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory, um, which that is, that's this amazing project that I, I still have trouble wrapping my head around sometimes because um, it's, it's so incredible. So the Ice Cube Observatory is a telescope that is at the South Pole, but it's extremely large telescope. So it is made up of over 5,000 basketball-sized detectors that are buried about a mile into the ice at different depths, but up to about a mile into the ice. And these detectors um, will pick up light that's emitted within the ice. So and that's such a crazy concept, but the light is coming from these neutrinos that are produced in violent events in the universe. So supernovas, or black holes, produce these high energy neutrinos that travel in a straight line. And when they hit an atom under the ice, they give off this burst of light, which is then detected by these round detectors and then sent up to the laboratory that sits at the very top. So the telescope works in a reverse manner that you would expect. Instead of looking up into the sky, taking pictures of the sky, we wait for these neutrinos to reach the ice, hopefully bump into an atom that is around our detectors, and then we can detect how strong the energy of that neutrino was and in which direction it comes from. And when that happens and they have um, neutrinos hit that they think are high energy enough to be coming from these astronomical events, then they communicate with other telescopes that point their cameras up to the same spot and hopefully see something that um, is of interest to us. It always blows my mind how people figured out to do things like that. Like, how, who, how, how, how did they come up with this and whose idea was it? And how did they figure out that this would work? Yeah. <laughs> mind blowing. Yeah. I, I feel the same way. I remember reading about this before I went and I'm like, how, what, how do you come up with this? And, and not only come up with it, but how did they build it? I mean, yeah. I, the construction of it and learning about how they developed these detectors that would stay functional under the ice yeah. and then took all the materials to build it in such a in such a unique place it, it actually took them seven years I think yeah seven years to complete this the con just the construction of it because they're limited by the the summer season mm -hmm. yeah that actually seems kind of fast to me like things are a mile under the ice and you only can work like part of the year basically I would assume like mm -hmm. wow yeah that's impressive very very much so they are really great team and even the team that I worked with we had a lot of delays that we had to deal with um, in terms of equipment that was coming and they took a project that had you know, they they were supposed to have four to six weeks to work on and they crammed it into two weeks of work and they made it happen and collected the data so it was it was very impressive to see the type of teamwork and the type of like, persistence that the scientists have um, and now in retrospect, I can see, okay, you definitely made this in seven years because this is the, this is the culture that's down there. They're just very resourceful and very dedicated to like meeting their goals. Yeah. I find that to be true of a lot of people who do field work, but it seems like it would just be doubly true in a really harsh environment, you know, especially somewhere so remote. Yeah, definitely. And I, this is my first experience with field research. Um, I come from, my background is traditional lab, you know, four walls and doing bench work. So I was really impressed by field science in general and seeing all of the issues that come up 
that are environmental, like you have no control and you have to find resources to get around it. So it's, it's very impressive. I came back completely in awe of scientists with a whole new respect for this, this subsection of field scientists. It's, it's definitely something that inspires you to apply that in every area of your, every area of your life. I'm a field scientist, so I'm a bit biased, but I think field scientists are awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, you rock. You totally rock. <laughs> okay, so you were there for like a, just under a month, and then you had to repeat your journey back, I assume. And it, But it sounds like the program, the idea is to then like take the things you learned and experience and then use that after. Um, is that right? And then if so, what you, would you end up doing or are doing, I guess? Yeah, right. So I did come back. The journey back was no delays. So that was really nice. I was trying to make it home before New Year. And I did like one day before. Um, I was very happy. And so was my family. <laughs> um, and so I came back and my I had a, a few dates lined up in um, March and April to do a little tour of the libraries here in LA County. But of course, all of those got canceled um, because of our because of the pandemic. So um, I spoke with the program about and I still wanted to do these type of outreach activities and move them online in a way that made them accessible. And um, at the same time, I started playing around and learning more video editing and, and how to shoot and edit my own videos and make them more clear, something I always wanted to do. And now I found myself with so much time to do it. Um, so I decided to take what would have been my presentation at these libraries and these school groups and turn them into a short video series called Tiny Ice that I'm putting out on YouTube right now. And Tiny Ice basically takes one idea or one concept about my travel or about the science that I learned there and summarizes it into a two minute window. So I put a timer on and we talk about the highlights and we hit all of the main ideas about one of the topics. Um, so I basically took my PowerPoint and I said, you know, what are 10 topics that are the most interesting? And then within those 10 topics, how do you explain that in two minutes so you can get the gist of it? Um, and then also share a bunch of millions of photos and videos that I took um, and so we're working on that. I think we are putting out video eight next week. And, um, but those will be done. It's a 10 part series and we're working on creating an assessment with it as well. So that at the end we can share out this full file that has 10 quick videos, but also a way to extend that information so that you can either quiz your students or find other resource to connect it into a lab or some sort of remote learning work. That's brilliant. Like what a brilliant solution to this pandemic messing up your plans. <laughs> so you were still able to like do your outreach. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I really wanted to and I, I was able to do one of them. It was it was maybe the week before everything closed down. And I had such a great time doing it. And I actually did it in a city where I grew up in on my dad's side. Um, and I just connected with the students so much. We like, understood, you know, the, the city and our experiences were the same. And so they were very excited to see like, how did you grow up here and then end up at the South Pole? How do I do that too? And it just made me so excited to continue to share this because I'm not a physicist and I'm not um, a field scientist. And I was given this opportunity to learn all of this information. And there's so much to learn and there's so much to explore outside of this traditional idea of science that I think would make kids especially excited because they have such big imaginations um, to, to imagine themselves in such an exciting place like the bottom of the world. Um, it made me really excited to share it. So I had to, I had to find a way to pivot. And I'm, I'm really thankful that, um, I mean, I had some, some time to do it in a way that hopefully, hopefully is helpful uh, to, to anyone who watches it. Yeah, totally. I'm sure it will be or is maybe because you said you have eight, seven of them out already. Um, 
Uh, yeah, I find this isn't a thing I knew about until like the last few years, but like outreach in somewhere, especially if you're from that place and people can connect to you on that level, it's just like it can be very powerful because like maybe kids don't know that there are like, you know, jobs and fields like unless you hear it, you have no idea it exists, you know, like it's so I think that's really cool that you like have connected to these these kids. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's so true. Um, even now as an adult, as I pursue different things in outreach, when I see someone who I'm like, oh, you're from the same area I am, or you have a similar background and you're doing X, Y, Z. Even as an adult, it makes me excited to think, well, if they have the same experience and are doing all these things, like maybe I can do that too. And so I can't even imagine like when you're a kid and your world is much smaller to see um, something larger than life or just to imagine the possibilities. It's, it's really exciting. And, and it goes both ways because when I went to this outreach event, I met a lot of young girls who reminded me of me. They literally looked, even looked like me when I was younger. And it makes me think back to myself and my impression of the world. And I had some great role models in my life, but I also didn't have a lot of information about what else existed and where else could I go. Um, so growing up in retrospect now, I know like growing up, I, I thought it was a very linear path where there's actually so many more routes and so many more opportunities that it, and it really starts with being informed, right? knowing your options and knowing what's possible. Yeah, totally. I tell the story a lot of where I didn't know what I wanted to do, but all I knew was the word biology. And so that was like what I latched onto. But then come to find out there's so many types of biology, but I didn't learn that until I was a senior in high school, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, like knowing what's out there and having the words for that thing is like eye-opening, I guess, in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It makes a huge difference to not only know about them, but then to see people you identify with mm -hmm. doing those things. It, it's a double confidence boost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how did you get drawn into the field that you got drawn into? Like, what's your, what was your path? I have a background in uh, biochem. I have a bachelor's that I got here in California in biochem. And I did a lot of research in college and after college for a while, um, I worked in the private sector and I loved it. And I thought that I would do research forever um, because it was fun. And it was something that I knew. I mean, going back to that, like that's what I thought science, being in science was like, that's what I would do, it's what I've done, what I continue to do. And um, I also really love the arts. And I've also always loved performing, being involved in community theater. So around the same time that I was, I was working after college in a lab, I auditioned for this local theater group. And I got in and I was starting to get integrated there, just kind of doing things on the side on the weekends or after work. And they have a touring program where they take children's books and put them on as plays and then tour them to different elementary schools as assemblies. And I thought that was just the cutest thing. I loved it. They were doing a production of Charlotte's Web. So I auditioned for that. And I was, um, I was Uncle the Pig, the big, the, the large pig at the county fair. And I, I had so much fun with it. And touring to schools, um, introduced me to this, this energy that, that young students have that are, they're so willing to hand over their imagination to you and, and, and so willing to say, yes, tell me a story, bring it to life. Like I am here for it. You know, I will, I will um, totally agree. And I will, I will come into your world. And the energy they gave us was so invigorating and I loved it. And I think at that moment, I started to realize how much I loved performing and kind of teaching in this informal way to students of this age, which I hadn't done before. I had tutored and I had done some um, 
like small part-time education jobs, but mostly with high school students. And this was the first time I worked with students in elementary school and they gave me so much energy. And it, it was almost like I was talking to the director one day and voicing this complaint of mine of like, you know, when I'm in lab, I wanna be performing for kids. And when I'm performing for kids, I miss my lab work. And I was venting and we ultimately came to this really random conclusion at the time of, well, why don't we just make a science show for kids um, that can combine everything you love about the lab and designing your own experiments with this energy that comes from these students. And I thought he was joking, but I jumped at the opportunity and I said, if you're serious, I will start writing something. And, you know, I was like, yeah, sure, write something and we'll see how it goes. And that's quickly snowballs into us developing the show um, and touring it locally and eventually developing it into a larger show. And um, the experience of the show built on the Charlotte's Web show because now I wasn't just performing, but I was learning how to integrate curriculum, learning how to not just entertain students, but I wanted them to leave having learned something, even if it was just that there were different areas of science, right? Even if it was just learning that science can be fun, it can be colorful, can be larger than life, um, that would be a win for me. Um, but also exercising their curiosity in a way that they didn't feel like they were learning, they were just having fun. And um, yeah, and so I slowly shifted away from bench work and started focusing more on science education, science communication, because I found that that's where more of my skill sets were matched up to. I felt more happy, more fulfilled, and I felt like I was, I was doing more of the work I wanted to do um, within the science world. And I didn't, I never imagined science communication or education to be a field I could be a part of, but now I can't, I can't really imagine myself anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, I think um, like outreach has always been like a part of some people's jobs, but it was never, you know, really the whole job. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's probably not a blanket statement, but you know, a lot of people do a combination of things, including outreach. But I feel like only recently has like science communication as a job become a job. Um, and I think it's really valuable because science as a whole needs people who are like ambassadors and great communicators and like have that energy and the abilities and skill set to like reach other people, which is not really a skill set I have. <laughs> so like, you know, I think we need all types, I guess is what I'm saying with this. And I think that it's fantastic that you found that out and like the way you got there is just so amazing. Yeah. And I, I think it's so important um, for the younger audiences, especially because I, they, they don't always have, uh, I mean, now things are different, but growing up, especially, I remember like the focus is always on math and reading, right? As it should be foundational subjects that really shape the way that you progress in, in school. But um, whenever science was brought up or science was talked about, it was kind of an alien subject or students didn't know how is this useful or how do I apply this or is this fun? I don't even know. It, it just seems hard or weird or useless. Um, and that's really the age where science can be a blast, you know, from the beginning, because once you're in high school, they're thinking very critically and it is fun, but it's a completely different lens. But when you're in the younger age, it really is this like adventure that you can take and, um, and, and you can lay a foundation for students to grow into their confidence and, and be able to understand that mistakes happen and that they're part of building something and that science is that platform where it's okay to make mistakes and you can feel confident in asking weird questions and, and having a blast. So I'm really excited to see, like you said, a lot, a lot more people switch into this field and and use their skills to communicate science and, and to teach science, even from these early ages, because that's, that's where I feel like a lot of that enthusiasm for science needs to be cultivated early on where they're, they can fixate onto something exciting. 
Yeah, I feel like that age is when a lot of people get hooked on whatever it is they're going to be hooked on for their life, basically. Like for me, it was science, but it was like being outdoors and playing in the woods, which I later found out the name for, you know. Um, and so I, a lot of people I've talked to are like, yeah, I was, you know, eight or 10 or 11 or somewhere around there. Like then I figured out what I wanted to do and then figured out eventually how to get there. And so talking to kids that age and younger even and older too, because, you know, not everybody knows, but it's just so, it's so important in my opinion. Yeah. And even, like you mentioned, giving different fields of science than the name and giving students that vocabulary to say, I want to be a wildlife field scientist, or I want to be a neuroscientist. Or, just having the vocabulary is so important as you latch onto things, right? And knowing that, hey, it's not just one part, like, look at all of the words, look at all of the terms I have to describe science. That means I have a lot of options. That means there's differences. And that's very important. And I loved seeing people that have gone on and have like PhDs and very specific topics come back and reimagine their curriculum or their field for a younger audience so that kids do get introduced to these very, very niche parts of science um, and realize that it's part of a greater, a greater umbrella, but that there's, there's very unique things in each world and that, yeah, if you like being outside, that could be science. If you like, um, you know, studying the body, that's science too. And just because they don't like one part doesn't mean like science is dumb and I hate it, but there's so many options. There's so many things that you can do with it. Yeah, totally. STEM and the whole, and just science within it is massive. There's so many things you can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so first of all, I love that you have this uh, science outreach program and what is it? Did you say what it's called? I think you might have. Oh yeah, the show. The show's called Jargy the Science Girl. And we are, um, as you can imagine, on a hiatus currently <laughs> because we're not able to tour. Um, so um, we've, we've just kind of put that on back burner and see what happens in the world. And yeah. And then I've just been working on doing other outreach through my own personal channels. Yeah, there will still be a need for Jargy the Science Girl after the pandemic, I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, I hope so. I definitely hope so. I, I, I miss doing the in-person outreach the most. Did you have like one set program or like a variety of things that you do when you, when, you know, pre-pandemic back in the, back in the good days <laughs> when you could go into schools and do these kinds of things uh, and say back in the good days facetiously, just so we all know. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. yeah. So the show we had, um, see now it's like it's been so long I really think about it we had we had three different versions of the show um we had a fourth one but that never never happened so we have three live versions of the show um and each one um focuses on a different topic so for example um one of them is all about chemical reactions one of them is all about gravity and energy um one is all about weather and we tailor them a little bit to different age group. So the chemical reactions one is a little bit more for um, K through second grade. And then the other two are more for the upper elementary grades. Um, and basically, it's a it's a live show where we bring up volunteers and they become part of the show and they help us go through different experiments. And through each experiment, we learn about topics. And at the end, you've connected all of these, all of these pieces together to kind of get a general overview of the topic and maybe two or three different ways where you can apply it in hands-on activity and a few ways that you can see it in your everyday life. And so it's me and a penguin lab assistant that um, go on tour and the kids, we just have, we have a great time. I think that kids, one, love being involved with hands-on activity, but also love seeing this this different worlds, right? And, and we, we don't bring a lot with us, but the things that we do bring are very large and they're very colorful and they're very kind of obnoxious to look at um, because I want to bring color and life into this world that maybe some of them have some misconceptions about. Um, how did you choose a penguin as a lab assistant? I love penguins. <laughs> I've always loved penguins. I've been 
just obsessed with them since I was in high school. Um, and I've had a lot of them. People just gift me penguin things, penguin stuffed animals. And when we were first shooting photos for the show to promote it, our very first shoots, um, I brought a bunch of random sciencey things from my room and I brought a penguin because I love penguins and we were positioning it to take a picture. And we took a few photos where it looked like I was talking to this penguin. And that kind of sparked the idea of wouldn't it be fun if I actually was talking to a penguin. And so I, we got a little custom lab coat that fits him. He's only about what, um, about 18 inches tall. We have a, he has a little custom lab coat and his name's Benjamin and he became my assistant. And of course he doesn't talk to the audience at least. Um, but uh, some of the activities are kind of led by Benjamin's past work, you know, where we preface things about what he likes. And I found that it, it helps students latch onto um, a sidekick. Uh, it's, it's always fun to have something a little bit more magical in it. I just think that like a penguin as a lab assistant would be really appealing because who doesn't love penguins? Yeah, I mean, how can you not? They're so adorable. Mm -hmm. They're, and it, it makes it fun, right? For the kids to have, um, to have a sidekick to, to relate to too. It makes it a little bit more magical. Yeah, so does Polar Trek work with more people besides the place you went with? Or is it, it's like a program and partners with different people? I'm just guessing. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, they partner with, gosh, I don't know how many, I don't know the exact number of labs, but they have um, relationships with research labs all over Antarctica and also up, up in the, the Northern Arctic region. So I, um, in the group, the cohort I was part of, I know there was a few people that worked at stations in McMurdo on the coast mm -hmm. where I first flew in. Um, and they do a lot, a lot more biology-based research, climate-based research, because they have those resources available to them. Mm -hmm. And, but in terms of the South Pole, I believe the Ice Cube Observatory is the only one that they pair up with the teachers, but, but yeah, they have relationships with researchers all over, all over Antarctica. So it's, it's a, it's a great program if, um, if you are any type of educator and you and you want that experience, it's a great program because they match you up with things that kind of relate to what you've done or what your interests are so that you have an easier time integrating it to your audiences. Yeah, that's cool. Makes me wish I was an educator so I could like do that program because it sounds amazing. Yeah, it's, it really is. They, and they're very supportive and um, Everyone, they also, every year that they do it and they come back and create um, resources, they have them all available. So mm -hmm. if, um, if you know anyone who wants to use those resources, there's tons of stuff in all the disciplines of science of how do you bring Antarctica into a classroom or into the field. Um, lots of cool stuff. Lots of cool stuff. Yeah, I have a lot of friends who are teachers, so I'm going to have to check that out and like, I don't know. Send, send it around maybe. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely things for activities or lesson plans, so much. And people have gone and been very creative with their projects too. So I've made a series because of the pandemic, but people in the past have made animated um, videos that explain their research or, or they do very in-depth tours of their station. So it's just a lot of different resources to pull from, which I think is why Polar Trek is such a great organization because they just have this like massive collection of these stations that you don't usually hear about. Mm -hmm. Right. I think like probably everybody's heard of McMurdo. Everybody's heard of the South Pole as a place. And, you know, now we know there's a station there, which I, I think I already knew that, but still. And I mean, I think like the other big one, and it's not even big, the other one I've heard of a lot is Palmer Station, but I think it's like max capacity is like 40 something people, which is way smaller than McMurdo. Yeah, a lot smaller, a lot smaller. That's up on the peninsula. Um, yeah. I, did, I didn't visit that one, but it looks really cool too. Actually, yeah, I'm sure they're all amazing in their own way. Mm -hmm. So your Tiny Ice series, first of all, the name, I just like really like that name. I don't know why, but it's some, it resonates in some way for me. 
Um, and it's like a really clever solution as well, because, you know, you can't do things in public. And I love the idea of like trying to fit it in in two minutes and just like make it as clear and succinct and whatever is possible. Yeah, I um, wanted to do something where it, you wouldn't have to watch a 30, 45 minute mm-hmm. presentation about everything because I have so much to say about Antarctica. But I also wanted to make it super accessible, where if you just wanted to zone in on a specific topic, you could do that. And also a little fun and challenging for myself as um, a communicator. How do I take the Ice Cube Lab and summarize it in two minutes? Um, And it forces you to tell the story with the main components, right? But still offer resources afterward for those that are interested. Um, And yeah, so I and I and I wanted it to be also informal. It's like an in-person event where I'm able to show pictures and videos um, and have it be like me just talking to you about Antarctica and all the cool things that um, I learned. Yeah, two minutes is simultaneously forever and no time at all, I feel like. (laughs) It is, it is, it definitely is. And there's a lot of episodes where I have had to speed up my dialogue a little or (laughs) or really reassess what I'm sharing because it's hard it's hard Mm -hmm. and I've thought a lot about why did I choose two minutes why did I do this um and I have no good reason except I wanted it to be a little bit more fun to watch um but it's hard it's hard to to narrow it down in in a time constraint and Mm -hmm. um and, but that's, that's part of the art of sharing science. And even when I used to do research and give presentations and you have a time limit, it's still, even if you have 20 minutes, it's still sometimes very hard to say mm-hmm. everything you want to say in what seems like a long time. So um, it's, it's a great practice. And I think moving forward, even beyond Tiny Ice, I will kind of use the structure to get the main topic of something out or like clear in my head how do you explain this to someone in two minutes or how do you explain this to someone who is five years old or, you know, Mm -hmm. it it really helps you clarify what you're trying to say. Yeah, totally. We, I've done this. I mean, the backstory is I had to do a video where I had to like explain myself and pitch myself for a program in two minutes. And it was so hard. I was like, I think I ended it like a minute 59. I was just like, Oh my God, hit stop for two minutes. (laughs) Yeah, yes. it's like nerve wracking, but like it's a good challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the, the the elevator pitch, right? Creating an yeah. elevator pitch for yourself or for your research. It's hard. It's mm-hmm. hard because you make a lot of assumptions also about what they know or what they don't know. Mm-hmm. So I think it, you have to also know your audience and like what things you don't have to spell out for them. Yeah, exactly. You got to really just like pare it down to the necessities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So what... Okay, wait, first up, where, Tiny Ice is on YouTube, right? Like, what's, do you have a channel name? Yeah, it's on YouTube. My channel is The Science J, which is me across all social media. Um, And so every Tuesday, um, this month has been every other Tuesday because um, editing. But every Tuesday or so, every time these are released, they're released on a Tiny Ice Tuesday. We release, I release a YouTube video and then I do a little bit more outreach on my Instagram because like we said, two minutes is not a lot of time and there's always tons of photos or information that I want to share on top of that. So I'll do a little Instagram story, um, talk about some extra Mm -hmm. things related to the topic for that week. And then I share a few more tidbits on my Instagram so that I get everything that I want out. Um, And we're working on creating one full document project so that when we can send that out to the communities or teachers, they have not just the videos, but they have all of the accessories, all the extra information I've been sharing. That's awesome. What are you going to do after Tiny Ice? Do you have any plans or schemes yet? (sighs) No, not yet. Actually trying to think about where to go next. I, I love Antarctica so much more than I thought I would. (laughs) Um, And that's just a crazy statement because how can you not love Antarctica? But there's just so much I want to still learn about it. So I might just keep 
educating myself about what other what else happens at the other stations that I didn't get to visit. Um, but no real plans yet. Still trying to figure out what's going to happen and also kind of balance that with what's being opened back up and when I can start possibly touring or doing other outreach in person. Uh, your statement about how Antarctica, you loved it more than you thought. I, I feel like, I have not been, but I feel like Antarctica is a place that just like gets into your body and lives there now. <laughs> it does. And I, and I knew or thought going into it, this is going to be an experience that changes my perspective on science and just perspective on the world really. Mm-hmm. But it, it did even more than that. It really, one is the travel and the adventure part of it that helped me personally learn how to like relinquish my fears <laughs> right mm-hmm. and to do something by myself that was so out of my ordinary and so last minute um, it really strengthened me as a person and then learning about the type of science and the the teamwork that happens on the continent like reinforced my love for science and then also just inspired me to learn more about how these teams function and how all of these processes work together to create such a big project. So it's, it's really an invigorating experience when you realize that something like this can happen in a place like Antarctica. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that to be true. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's got, it had to have been just like a I mean, you described it, but just like going from Southern California to the South Pole, just like the climactic differences has got had to have been shocking. Uh, I was so so scared. And and the first few days in the South Pole, I was wearing every piece of outdoor gear that I had because I was so terrified of the cold. And so I was literally sweating in my gear because I just had too much on. I was overprotecting myself. Um, And with the days you realize, you know, depending on how overcast it is or not, you, you start to understand how much gear you actually need to be comfortable. And that's one example of how you, you have to adapt and you learn how to adapt and how to not be afraid, but how to embrace your environment and embrace the newness of it so that you're comfortable. Yeah, yeah, because that's a vast difference, I'm sure, from what, you know, what you normally live in. Uh, It would be the same for me, because I'm basically, you know, due east of you, so. um, Yeah, it's worlds, worlds apart. (laughs) Yeah, 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 that would, that's how I would feel, too, because, I mean, I travel, I've traveled to cold places, but I've not been, you know, anywhere polar, (laughs) so. That would be very different than South Louisiana, for sure. <laughs> yeah, just a little. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure I would feel the same as you did. Um, yeah, everything you're doing just sounds so amazing. Um, and I can't wait to go watch the Tiny Eye series because it sounds amazing, too. Thanks. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. And um, I've been having a lot of fun doing it, just being able to feel like I'm using this experience productively because I was I was really nervous when everything closed down and I couldn't do my outreach and we had also a whole plan of incorporating the South Pole into our Jargi national show and having a segment about Antarctica which wasn't able to happen Um, but finding this new outlet in video making has given me a little bit more peace that I'm trying to communicate it in a way that makes me happy um in a way that you can't always do with like a live stream right this way I can fine-tune it to really clarify everything I'm saying yeah yeah I mean I would I would assume after things have opened back up and you can do your science show again that maybe at some point you can add Antarctica or do an Antarctica version or some way because that would be cool I'm sure Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. At the very least, I want to visit more students in person and and do some more hands-on, hands-on experiences with them. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna back up because you saying that reminded me. I think that the um, the taking the kids books and turning them into plays and taking them to schools is amazing. Like it's not science related, but 
it led you to what you're doing. But I just think that that's such a cool concept. Yeah, they um they really do great work with bringing books to life, and they're they're a literature based. Uh, focused organization and mm-hmm. so they only focus on bringing books to life um before before dry but mm-hmm. that's in itself it is really fantastic because often especially if kids don't always enjoy reading they mm-hmm. might not be able to see this world and then bringing that world to them and saying look it's real you know it exists or look how exciting it is um draws them back into reading and wanting to kind of recreate that world in their mind so I uh, I loved it I think they're doing fantastic work and they they recreate these books for all grade levels I just happen to work with the elementary section but they also do it for high school as well and it's it's a great concept and I think that's why I latched onto it because once you can see things or if you can portray things in a specific way to kind of nudge students to see it differently it I think changes a lot of perspectives and it, and it gives them a chance to combat any negative perceptions they have of the book or the topic because um, you're literally showing it to them in a new way. Yeah, seeing things visually is different than reading them, but also if you've read it or even if you haven't, it can like reinforce something because you also like literally saw it. Um, that's probably why movie adaptations are so like, <laughs> you know, so common. <laughs> yeah, it's because it's yeah. like, oh, wow, I saw this in my head and now I'm seeing it in person. Mm-hmm. It, it makes you remember it forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's such a cool idea. Good job on that group of people. Yeah, I don't have any other questions. Is there anything you want to talk about? Did we miss anything? I don't think so. <laughs> I think we talked about a lot. Yeah, no, um, that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at with, with my work and just excited to keep, to finish the Tiny Eye series and um, to hopefully as the world opens up or even before it does, just find more opportunities to, to share what Ice Cube is doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's great. And I am, you seem like a very creative person. I'm sure you will come up with a creative idea next and a solution to whatever the world seems to throw at you because 2020, who knows? <laughs> so yeah, you never know. Just <laughs> be ready to pivot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been so nice to talk to you. Thanks, Rachel. I had a great time. Hey, y'all, it's Rachel. Thank you so much for listening. So. Here is where you can find us. You can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. Um, there's no Twitter page for the podcast because I didn't want to manage a bunch of Twitters. So since the podcast is an extension of me, find the podcast on Twitter at Flying Cypress, which is me, Rachel Villani. Also, if you're on Facebook, you can find the podcast at Storytellers of STEM on Facebook, STEM with two M's. Um, everything we talk about, I will be shared in the Facebook page and also on Twitter, like I said. So go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, um, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy.